The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with a professional who does this stock stuff for a living. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. Phil, I'm looking at the markets here, you know, bouncing off the bottom here. I guess we're just throwing around the question here in the studio. Did we see the bottom of this market? Is this real? This Or is this just kind of a little bit of a head cake in the context of a greater bear market? Head cake or head fake? Head fake is kind of what I was <laughs> That's the Monday for. version of head fake. Yes. Look, we, we've had a really good six weeks. I mean, the month of July, the S&P was up about 10%. I think that was the best month we've seen in a couple of years. Since the middle of True. June, market went from uh, an oversold reading, has rallied about 13%. I, I think we're a little overbought here. Um, but, you know, I was listening to your conversation earlier. This is kind of a bad news is good news kind of a scenario that, you know, the inflation is sitting at a 41-year high. The, the GDP report last week not particularly good you know everyone's on recession watch right now and and the way the market has perceived all of this is that the data is so bad that that must mean that there's going to be a, an immaculate fed pivot you know by the middle of next year that the fed will ha will be able to stop hiking interest rates this year and we're going to start to see a deceleration of that pace and then the fed is going to turn around and start actually cutting interest rates by the middle of next year um, we think that that is a little too optimistic and and uh... inflation in our view is, is stubborn it's uh... it's deep-seated it's uh... sitting at a forty one year high we're not going to be able to wave a magic wand and in a couple of months take uh, nominal CPI from 9.1% back to 2 or 3%, we're going to measure that decline, we think, over the course of a couple of years, not a couple of months. So for, for all those reasons, uh, this very impressive 13% rally over the, next six, over the last six weeks could, could very well result in some profit-taking over you know, the next couple of months as you know, we get some, some, some more difficult data. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, Phil. Um, one thing I I noticed or I read from Cameron Kreis, we got to get this guy in here. Yeah, well, he he, he screened for uh, he probably works from home. He screened for every drop, monthly drop of more than seven and a half percent. That was followed by a month that uh, you know more than made up for that, which is what we just saw. And the results are pretty shocking if you look post-war. It's only happened um, a few times in October of 1974, in October of 2002, in March of 2009, uh, January of 2019, and 
April of 2020. So it's only been these big bottoms that we know. I mean, March of 2009 is like uh, imprinted on my brain as a massive bottom. Um, it looks good, at least. But I take your point that people are going to be wanting to take profits and those who uh, stayed with it and are just too have too much agita want to get out. But maybe we don't have to fall another 20% is what I'm thinking. Because that's kind of what was the bad news consensus right before this month is that we went halfway, we have another halfway to go. Well, it, to some degree, that's going to be a function of economic growth and corporate earnings growth. Um, if we were having this conversation a week ago, uh, the earnings for the S&P 500 uh, were probably down about 5 or 6% into the quarter now. But a lot of the energy companies have started to report, God bless them. So we're about two-thirds of the way through the earnings season, and earnings have gone from being down 6 or 7%. They're now up 7% largely on the strength of how good the earnings reports have been. Discretionary financials, technologies, those numbers are all negative. And to a significant degree, companies are providing uh, cautious guidance. Strategists and analysts may start to cut their numbers. Uh, and, and multiples have just moved up a couple of turns based upon this 13% rally we've seen over the last couple of months. So I think that as we get into the August, September you know, early October period, there may be a little bit of rationalization in terms of valuations, lower earnings estimates, lower GDP growth estimates, uh, more um, comfortable PE multiples, i.e. lower. And and I just think that, that given this big rally we've seen, uh, yep. it would be prudent to expect a little bit of a pullback here. All right. Good stuff. As always, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. They've got over $600 billion in assets under management. That's some sway right there. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Let's bring in our next guest, Robert Stimson, CIO and Portfolio Manager, Oak Associates Funds. Robert, some folks have tell been telling me here as I look at this bounce off the bottom that we can buy it here, but you got to be selective. What is what does selective mean to you in a market move that we're experiencing right now? Is it is this kind of a bear cat bounce or is this something I can really wait a bear market rally or a dead cat bounce? Dead cat bounce. Yeah, yeah I use okay. a bear cat market. Bear cat bounce. I like that. Uh, how do you think about that stock selection, Robert? Well, good morning, guys. No, I agree. You have to be pretty selective in this market simply because you know the forward news flow uh, is still very questionable. Um, we're about to head into some earnings reports, and I think they're going to be mixed, and that's going to affect sentiment. And we know the overall trends in the market are, are pretty strong. The, the Fed is raising rates, inflation is still persistent, and that affects different areas differently. So, um, you know, a lot of consumer-focused uh, businesses 
uh, are going to struggle because the consumer is pinched, pinched by inflation and pinched by higher interest rates, whereas uh, industries that have more long-tail spending cycles, uh, whether it's uh, capital expenditure within tech, uh, you know, those are probably going to fare better in this sort of environment. Is this, you know, for years, um, people have talked about active versus passive and the kind of Jack Bogle passivity of Vanguard one out. But is that over now? I mean, is buying an index tracking fund just not going to do as well as getting an active manager? You know, that's, uh, you know, the million dollar question. Um, You know, I do think there is value in active management. And I do think a lot of the industry does not realize the risk that come with index funds. I mean, the top five and ten positions in an index fund um, tend to be the names that are up a lot. They tend to be, um, you know, big movers of the market in the index. Um, so there's a risk profile there that a lot of people uh, may not fully understand. Or yeah, they're betting on Tesla, essentially, in, in a sense. I mean, I, I can't believe it's, I think, the fourth biggest weight or the fifth biggest weight in the S&P. Yeah. Robert, talk to us about healthcare. I know in the past that's an area you guys have been looking at. What's your healthcare sector call right now? So coming out of the pandemic, we feel like a lot of industries out there rebounded strongly uh, as the world returned to normal. But healthcare was one that lagged, and it you know kind of makes sense. People were reluctant to head back to the doctor to get those knees replaced, those hips, or seek the care. They were more apt to go on vacation or on a cruise or back to concerts. So we think the return to normal for a lot of traditional consumer healthcare is still in front of the index. And when you look at its relative valuation compared to other industries, it's still very attractive. So it's more defensive. The valuation is attractive. It has business in front of it. And it's also an industry that is used to operating uh, in a high inflation environment. I mean, healthcare costs have been going up, you know, mid-single digits for years. Uh, so this is business as usual with a tailwind and, of course, the long-term demographics. So um, it's an area we like. Uh- and there's nothing that can turn that around. I mean, you'd think that especially the Democrats would like to slow it down, but they they can't. And maybe um, their lobbyists are the same as Republican lobbyists, so they won't. Um, you're not concerned about anything in the future that stops that because it does seem like such an easy, such a slam dunk. You know, the risk of regulatory oversight and pricing pressures, uh, you know, I'm not going to belittle it, but it has been around for 20 plus years. uh, And at the end of the day, it has very little um, impact beyond sentiment over the group. So um, it's a risk, absolutely, but it's not a risk you should embrace and avoid the sector entirely because of it, because that would have been a losing proposition over the last 20 years. Certainly, though, it's a popular trade, right? I mean, uh, we all see and feel the rising cost of health care and then make that decision for an investment. Where do you see value? What's unloved right now that that you think um, people have overlooked? Well, I do think the the two sectors within healthcare that are somewhat overloved. Now, the managed care groups have been performing well, uh, but I think the the pricing trends are underappreciated there. With higher healthcare costs uh, and the cost of insurance, I mean these prices kind of get booked into the managed care groups, um, and it tends to be very profitable by locking in at higher prices for them. So we think that's a powerful factor for that group. And the other issue is the the drug distributors. 
Um, they have been probably the main target of, of pricing pressure, uh, regulatory concerns from Washington. But the, again, those concerns are often overblown when it comes down to actually implementing legislation to change things. And the group was also suppressed for a long time due to concerns over the opioid legislation. And now that most of those concerns have either been settled or en route to being settled, that is a huge overhang from the group. Um, that you know relieves a lot of the the risks so as a result we think those groups are attractive as well all right robert thank you so much uh for taking the time to join us and share your thoughts here on these markets robert stimson he's the cio and portfolio manager at oak associates funds all right i'm looking at apple's balance sheet here 180 billion in cash 120 in total debt, so that's 60 net cash. I'm looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. I gotta say, it's one of my favorite functions. It's so basic, but it's, it's just- It's got everything you need. I yeah. mean, everything. Whoever thought that uh, function up did, did, did good. Uh, so, all right, so 60 billion in net cash on the balance sheet, 110 billion in projected free cash flow in each of the next couple of years. Why are these, why is this company going into the bond market? Well, Anurag Rana, he covers all this stuff, senior software and IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anurag, why are they going to the bond market? Why does Apple borrow money? Yes, Dev. I mean, the, the cost of money is so cheap, it does make sense to borrow it and keep it because, as you said, their net cash is about $60 billion, and they spend about 85 to $90 billion in buying back stock. So they do have to borrow that money to buy back that, that shares that you mentioned just now. That's crazy. They borrow money to buy back shares. So And the bond analysts and the bond investors don't care. Usually that is a huge no-no. Can you lend us money so we can pay our stockholders? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, but, but they're going to generate over $100 billion in free cash, so it's not a big deal. It's just a matter of what's most optimized for that capital structure. So if, you know, if they can borrow, let's say, a few hundred, let's say even 100 basis points or 150 basis points above treasuries, that's really cheap capital. That's just, you're not, you're not going to be able to buy it let's say a few years from now, um, that much uh, cash at that, that low prices. All right, so given that free cash flow profile, given that balance sheet profile, I then go to another great Bloomberg function that is the most used function, DES, to get a sense of what their dividend yield is. It's less than 1%. Why don't smart equity analysts like you, Anara, get in the ear of the CFO mm -hmm and say, raise that to a respectable 2 2.5%, 3%. That would be really good to attract retail shareholders. So, Paul, I've been writing that I think they should uh, increase their buybacks rather than the dividends because, you know, in FY20, which their fiscal 20, they reduced share counts by about 6%, 5.7%, and they bought back $72 billion in free cash flow in, in stock. In FY21, they reduced the share count by 3.8%, uh, on and but used about 86 billion this year fy22 they're going to reduce the share count by somewhere around 3.2 percent so that inherent eps growth is just coming down a little i would love for them to buy back more shares rather than increase the dividend but just as my personal choice i mean isn't one better for dividends is probably better for the shareholder whereas buybacks is better for the corporation because once you start a dividend, you can't uh, reduce it or cut it off without taking a lot of heat in markets, right? Whereas a buyback plan, exactly. there's a beginning and an end. Exactly. So, no, I mean, a buyback, you know, once also, it is, it is, 
it's a cultural thing. If you have a company like Apple where the free cash flow is predictable, you can say that the buyback is going to be predictable as well. The, the thing is, again, you know, this, there's a lot of discussions about the value of buybacks versus dividend, in my view, and it has changed over the years. If the, if the intrinsic value of the company is, is still below the current share price, they should be using that cash to buy back more shares because inherently as a shareholder, my you know, piece of the pie becomes growth, grows every year by that 4 or 5% without even putting a new dime in. So I think from that point, if it's a value company, and Berkshire just started doing this after many years of not uh, buying back any shares. If you, can't, if you don't know what to do with that cash, you should be buying back shares, assuming they are trading below the intrinsic value of the company. By the way, um, does it keep growing at that level, Anurag? Because, you know, I bought, an, I bought a, a desktop Apple computer back in, I think, 2012, and I still don't need a new one 10 years later. <laughs> it still does way more yeah. than I could ever do with it. Um, my, my iPhone uh, 11 or 12, even though it's got a little break in the corner of the screen, I can't imagine what an upgrade would really get me. Um, and my Apple Watch also, it does everything I need it to. Like, I don't need a new one. What, what, what are they going to come out with that I have to buy? No, it's, it doesn't have to be. It's going to be the replacement cycle for your iPhone as the single biggest driver. Because what happens is the average lifetime of, there are about 800 million units of iPhones out there. The average life, let's say, is somewhere between three and a half and four years. You may not want to upgrade right now, but within the next four years, you will. It's just a matter of it will slow down. So every year, they're selling 200 million iPhones even without finding a new buyer. This is just the replacement cycle. And then what happens is, and we saw this this time in the quarter, they saw really good growth in emerging markets. Countries like Brazil and India uh, and China and Indonesia, where the middle class, as it starts to become a little bit richer, Apple is the brand they're going to go through. They, they get rid of their Android phone, a lower end Android phone, and they go for an iPhone. That's the growth market. It's not going to come from you, Mark Miller. It is you are just a replacement for every three to four years, but it is going to come from those emerging markets. Matt is not a growth market. That wasn't very nice to say. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. By the way, Anurag, can you settle something for our listeners uh, once and for all? Does Apple have a secret self-destruct mechanism built into <laughs> the phone? Like it, At the time when you're ready to renew, does your battery just automatically die? No, I don't think so. But what happens is you really need to take those, you know, you, you want to take those high-end videos. You want to be able to run games at a much faster pace. So over time, when these new applications are built, when new videos come out, when, and, you know, Netflix videos at a very high pace, your system may not be able to handle it because the equipment is four, five, six years old, then you will replace it at that time. All right, Anurag Rana, thanks so much for joining us. Anurag Rana, Senior Software and IT Services Analyst, phoning it in uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. i like to point that out. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.
All right, let's switch gears, go a little political. Let's go Washington, D.C. Emily Wilkins, congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. So, Emily, the news coming out today that uh, Speaker uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi will, in fact, visit Taiwan. What's the feeling within the nation's capital about that news? So we've known about this trip for a while. Of course, Speaker Pelosi's office wouldn't confirm it for security and safety reasons, but Bloomberg's been reporting on this for a while. And we know that even though the Department of Defense and the Pentagon have raised some concerns about it, strictly from a security standpoint, there is really a lot of support for the Speaker to be making this trip at this time. Um, you heard both uh, from Democrats as well as Republicans and thinking about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that if Pelosi was to back out of this trip now, that she'd be handing a gift to China and that they are supportive of her going. It's certainly a significant trip. This is, you know, the number three top leader in the entire United States making a official visit to Taiwan, uh, the first since House Speaker Newt Gingrich traveled to the island back in 1997. Ah, so another speaker's done this. And I feel like um, speaker is kind of the highest level we could do this without starting an actual (laughs) war. But are people still going to possibly die because of this trip? I mean, is she risking real military action? I mean, certainly the military is always cognizant, right, when a congressional leader or so someone, you know, the president goes abroad, there are security measures in place. Heck, even when they go domestic, there are security measures in place. This is just a little bit more of, of a larger situation, a tenser situation. Uh, I think, uh, and this is a bit of guesswork here, but I think if the speaker seriously thought that someone was going to die, she would not be going on this trip. Same with Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And, and to be clear, at this point, we still don't have confidence confirmation from the speaker's office that she will be going to Taiwan. She's in Singapore today. We know her schedule is going to bring her to Malaysia, to South Korea, to Japan. But her schedule isn't completely finalized. We don't know the exact dates for all of those things. And so there could be a potential that she could go to Taiwan and it not be announced ahead of time, potentially for security reasons. Uh, Emily, we've got about 30 seconds left or so. Do we have any sense of what her agenda might be with a visit to Taiwan? Well, President Biden did tell uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping on the phone last week that the U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. So I don't think we're expecting any sort of major announcements, but perhaps to sort of reaffirm Taiwan, especially after we saw everything with Ukraine and Russia in the past year. Just it seems like a very highly, highly visible trip. So we'll see if it's anything more than just a photo op, I guess. I mean, I think it'll be very interesting to see what is done and what is said. It does seem on a way of reaffirming that the U.S. does have support for Taiwan. Yeah. Cross yep. this line. Okay. We're crossing <laughs> We're it. crossing. Exactly. All right. Emily Wilkins, congressional reporter, uh, joining us uh, from Bloomberg Government in Washington, D.C. Stephanie Pierce is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That's big news for us. She's the CEO at Dreyfus Mellon, does all the uh, exchange-traded funds there at BNY Mellon. So, Stephanie, a crazy year, brutal, brutal first half of the year. You could make money anywhere in that 60-40 portfolio. Now we've had a little bit of a bounce. What's been like in the ETF world? Is that still the hot thing out there? Well, here's what I would say. ETFs continue to be, in any market environment, the vehicle of choice for investors. We've seen over $300 billion of flows year to date on a net basis in ETFs, so it just doesn't stop. But here's what's interesting. There's been a lot of talk about the divergence between taxable fixed income mutual fund flows, which have been negative, and ETF flows in the same category, which have been positive, and it's a pretty big spread. But if you actually peel away the onion, that's happening in multiple sectors. U.S. equity, same thing. Mutual funds and outflows, 
ETFs and inflows. International equity, same thing. About the only place that's not true is alternatives and commodities where both are in positive flows. But you know, if you peel it back one level further, what's really interesting is it's not really about just mutual funds and ETFs, it's active mutual funds in those categories that are mm. in outflows and ETFs both active and passive in the same categories in inflows. So one thesis on that is that the tax loss harvesting opportunity as we've seen market volatility has given you know, opportunity here to actually book those losses or, uh, you know, make the kind of opportunistic trades in portfolios to clean up loss and upgrade. Harvesting. We've yeah, you want to take right. your losses after a 20% drop in the S&P 500, right? You had your index funds and that was the thing to do for years. Now the kids want actively managed uh, funds and they don't want to pay the mutual fund fees, right? So they're looking for actively managed ETFs, even, um, that's a good explanation. Even Vanguard there, right? is like starting to do this. I don't know if Vanguard is actually starting to do it. No, but. I think it's right. I mean, look, the reality is it's been years since you could actually move out of a mutual fund without the penalty of a big capital gain. And so in the first part of this year, you've had that opportunity. So when we talk to our investment advisor clients, this is a way they can show value to their clients. So it's also been, I mean, never that you've been able to buy actively managed. I mean, this is a relatively new thing, right? Not this year, but in the past, mutual funds were, um, or or any kind of fund that wasn't an ETF was an, your only actively managed choice, you know? That's right. That's now right. you can actually buy an ETF for 50, 60, 75 basis points and you get an active manager. That's right, and if you actually look at the flows this year underneath that 300 billion, active managers or active ETFs are punching above their weight, right? So active ETFs are only 5% of the entire $6 trillion, $7 trillion US ETF marketplace. So call it 300 billion, but they are over 15% of the flows that I mentioned of that 300 billion. What about, so definitely what about people who want to hedge against inflation? We were talking with Phil Orlando earlier and he was saying, um, you know, healthcare actually has been a great hedge against inflation. I thought, well, I should be doing that for my future, right? For yeah. the well, one day when, when, when I get cancer or you're heart disease money. or whatever happens, I, and I go, oh my God, the hospital bills are insane. I will be happy to have invested in healthcare. But are ETFs uh, a big vehicle for hedging against inflation? Are people using them for that this year? Yeah, and you absolutely are seeing some cyclical trades, right? So, you know, one of the things that I would note, particularly in ETFs, and this is both active and passive, would be, you know, particularly in the month of July, we actually saw a reversal where instead of just the short duration fixed income ETFs that we saw or equity ETFs earlier in the year dominating flows, we actually started to see fixed income take over equity overall. And within that, more extending duration, more corporate exposure being taken on. So not just short duration, but people really trying to look to say, gee, you know, if the Fed is even close to halfway done in the tightening cycle, and we could debate whether that's true or not, but investors are looking at what's priced in the market and saying, gee, maybe I can extend out the curve here, pick up a little bit more yield. So that is definitely a theme that uh, that we are seeing. In and the yield is a theme. That's what Katie Greifold was just telling us. People want uh, dividend paying ETFs. Dividend paying ETFs and even areas like, you know, corporate investment grade, you know, you're looking at things like high yield, which has seen, you know, for the first time all year, two months of positive flows, a couple billion dollars. Why is that? Well, you can pick up a seven to 8% yield in a high yield ETF. That's a nice coupon, even if you think there's some recession risk and there's some risk of default, call it one, one and a half percent worst case default risk, you're still picking up a nice coupon if you're a little shy about jumping back into equity, right? You have equity-like exposure with a nice coupon to shield you a little bit. And certainly valuations are very attractive. You know, corporates still don't have a lot of um, you know, leverage. They have historically, you know, high cash on the books. It's not a bad trade in this environment. 
Stephanie, I see in your extensive resume that you spent some time at Fidelity. It can't be a good time to be a mutual fund. Every time I talk ETFs, it's just record inflow here, record inflow there. Well, look, What's it's, going it, on? look, mutual funds and ETFs are going to coexist for a long, long time. Right. But I think it's fair to say, you know, I have a 12 year old at home. Many of us have kids, grandkids. I'm not so sure that those kids are or their their kids are necessarily going to buy mutual funds. Wow. ETFs are simpler. They're more transparent. Sure. They're more cost and tax efficient. There's one price. It's really what we think of as the democratization of finance. And everybody's converting. I mean, we're seeing so many conversions this mutual year. Funds mutual convert. funds yeah. converting yeah. into ETFs. And the only reason they wouldn't is probably because of this aged, you know, 401k infrastructure that still doesn't allow a lot of times you to pick ETFs, but that's going to change. Like that's, that's right. And it is operationally complicated with multiple share classes, what kind of account they're sitting in. So All it's right. not simple to do. But All I right. absolutely think um, that is the wave of, of the future is probably more ETFs and more next generation investors coming into the vehicle. All right. Stephanie Pierce, thank you so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Stephanie Pierce, CEO Dreyfus Mellon and Exchange Trader Funds at BNY Mellon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.